This is a CBC Podcast. Hi there, I'm Brett Forster and this is the Power in Politics Podcast for January 3rd. On the pod today, Canada's healthcare system is in crisis mode as emergency rooms across the country surge over capacity. Coming up, the president of the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians says it's the worst he's seen in his 35-year career. Plus, deadly blasts in Iran kill nearly 100 people just a day after an airstrike in Lebanon kills a senior Hamas leader. Can the volatile Middle East avoid an all-out war? And Canada's foreign policy is under fire. What one group says the government needs to do to step up its presence on the world stage. Power in politics starts right now. We begin with Canada's buckling healthcare system. Hospitals from coast to coast are overwhelmed as their understaffed emergency rooms get flooded with sick patients. In Ontario today, a union representing hospital workers says the staffing crisis is having profound and unprecedented consequences. A healthcare worker will pull into a parking lot and they'll count the number of cars and they know that there's not enough people that are going to be there to fill that shift. So they know already before they even get into the building that they're going to be working short. And it, it, it's like climbing a mountain every day. Uh, you reach a breaking point, and I think that's what's happening to a lot of our healthcare workers right now. For more, we turn to the president of the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians, Dr. Mike Howlett. Dr. Howlett, welcome to Power and Politics. Hello. So it sounds like from the reports out there that things are rather dire. What are you currently seeing in your hospital? Well, personally, I just finished the fifth, and uh, we were seeing the worst crowding of admitted patients uh, that we've ever seen since I started in 1987. Wow. I mean, that's a pretty significant uh, statistic, the worst crowding you've seen since 1987. If things are that bad for the healthcare professionals on the front lines, what impact are these conditions having on patients? Patients aren't, aren't really able to get... Um, timely enough care sometimes because there are too many different tasks that people have to do in too short a time given the numbers of people that they have to see. Sometimes uh, people who are really seriously ill are hidden in amongst people with less serious illness and so it sometimes takes a while till you, you discover their problems. Sometimes people are admitted to hospital but because they're sitting in stretchers and in chairs waiting, they uh, they can't get enough attention. And we know that people that are waiting for long periods in emergency departments after admission have a higher mortality rate, there's a higher death rate. And, and we, we see some evidence of that uh, periodically as we're working. Now, Dr. Howlett, the Ontario Council of Hospital Unions is calling for more funding to address staffing issues, or perhaps I should say understaffing issues. Uh, healthcare funding was a recent uh, big political issue, but is more money the answer? I would say that investment in the right things is the answer. I think that there has been underfunding in certain critical areas for many years. If you look at how hospital beds have decreased since the 1990s. It's a dramatic change since then. I think if you look at the numbers of nursing staff and physician staff we have in certain critical areas, um, not all areas, but some in particular, that uh, it's certainly an issue. But I would say that if you're going to spend money, it needs to be targeted carefully. Like our own organization has called on the ministers of health nationally to hold a forum uh, to produce actions that will improve the system 
in a careful and a guided manner with good evidence. Um, we haven't seen a good evidence approach yet, a good population-based approach yet. And, and we're hoping, rather than departments of health taking pot shots at uh, the problem uh, without, without good information, that uh, perhaps we can move towards uh, a more rational and a better planned system that actually puts patient safety, patient safety culture first, rather than as an afterthought. You mentioned the need for carefully targeted investments in certain critical areas. Can you give me a few examples of what those critical areas are? Well, critical care nursing is one of those. Uh, we are uh, very sure critical care nurses across the country, but for emergency departments and in ICUs, etc. And, and as a result, we're having to hire more and more junior nurses who haven't had the opportunity to develop their skills yet. Um, we're also losing uh, a lot of our critical care senior nursing staff as well because they take up other jobs which are less stressful and less risky with less burnout. So um, that's one area. With physicians, there's a, a general shortage of emergency physicians across the country. We estimate at a, around 1,500 or so, and it's going to increase, uh, not decrease. At our own hospitals here, we have had a significant difficulty hiring well-trained staff and there just aren't enough uh, training physicians in particular for those groups. Um, and, and so that needs to be targeted in a way that gives them the skills that they need for those particular roles. Dr. Howlett, uh, earlier in the interview, you referenced the overcrowding. Some Quebec emergency rooms in the Montreal area are reporting over 200% occupancy in the province, even recently asked the public to avoid ERs unless it's absolutely necessary. What kind of consequences do you see that level of occupancy having on our healthcare system? Well, it means that the, the, the people who are occupying those spaces can't get enough of the type of care that they need or in a timely fashion. I mean, five years ago, we would have uh, 25 nurses taking care of, say, 200 people a, a day in the emergency department, and we'd have 12, 15 people that are waiting for admission. Well, now we have 50 people or 60 people or more waiting for admission, and we have the same 25 nurses, and we have the same physician complement. I mean, that... It, I mean, it's self-evident that people will not be able to get to all the things that they need to do. So it sounds like you're saying this will have a pretty significant impact on regular people's everyday lives. How can the system continue to function with this level of strain that it's currently operating under? Well, what happens is people try to, you know, have makeshift solutions. They try to find ways of temporizing we put patients in hallways on stretchers or hallways and chairs. We uh, we do what we can uh, to see people uh, and uh, make sure that they get adequate care. Um, we uh, try to advocate for better circumstances and better, um, you know, information for making policy decisions. We ask for more long-term care uh, funding and and so that we can get people out of hospital into appropriate care spaces. Um, we just want some rational thinking in the way things are planned. And that's why we proposed this national forum, because we don't think they're always listening to the right voices. 
Finally, Dr. Hallett, what does the current state of emergency departments across the country say about the health of the rest of our health care system? If you had to diagnose the system itself, how would you do it? The emergency department and the emergency department care has always been the canary in the coal mine, if you will. It's always been a signpost of how well the rest of the system is doing. And, and it's basically a symptom of larger problems, um, larger waiting times, larger acute care, uh, uh, lack of spaces, lack of uh, care and long-term care for people with uh, chronic medical problems and severe functional problems. So um, there, there are related areas um, that are having big problems that show up in the emergency room as problems. Um, and uh, part of it leads to the overcrowding problem, part of it leads to the staffing issues and staffing risk and staffing problems. Um, it, it's a snowball effect when the rest of the system is not functioning well. Uh, the last part of it is the safety net, and the, the safety net is tearing holes. Is there any cause for optimism, even though conditions may be that dire? I think this is the first time I've seen in the last 20 years where the public is starting to realize that there are issues and it really takes the public understanding that there are issues to encourage people in power and people in charge of the system to want to look for good solutions. Up till now, there hasn't been that kind of pressure um, and it's kind of late, uh, which is too bad, but at least it's starting to is starting to create uh, enough interest and concern that perhaps people will start to to examine the issues and produce, you know, a better system. I mean, if you look at the airline industry, it it anticipates problems and it develops systems to avoid uh, bad outcomes. In healthcare, we we just haven't done that yet. We haven't planned our systems to be able to prevent problems. We wait till they happen and then we chase them. Um, and those types of solutions should be out there, but it takes a different kind of thinking. It takes a different attitude. It takes a, a concern for people first and foremost, rather than a concern for, um, for instance, uh, financial bottom line. I mean, sometimes governments say, well, we've managed to save money. Well, if you manage to save money on the backs of other people's um, suffering, I don't think that's a good thing. All right, Dr. Mike Howlett, we do have to leave it there. I really appreciate you taking the time. Go home and get some rest. Thank you. Fears are mounting over a widening conflict in the Middle East. This, after two deadly blasts today, rocked a city in Iran. Iranian state media say two bombs in suitcases were remotely detonated near the tomb of General Qasem Soleimani. He is the former head of Iran's Quds Force and was assassinated by the U.S. in 2020. Today marks the fourth anniversary of his death. Mourners were gathered near his tomb when the bombs exploded. At least 95 people, including children, were killed, according to state media. Hundreds more were injured. So far, no one has claimed responsibility for the attack, but the Americans are adamant that they were not involved. It's too early, at least for us, to be able to say what might have caused it. But I do want to address some of the irresponsible claims that I have seen circulate and say that, number one, 
the United States was not involved in any way, and any suggestion to the contrary is ridiculous. And number two, we have no reason to believe that Israel was involved in this explosion. Dennis Horak previously served as head of Canada's mission to Iran and as ambassador to Saudi Arabia. He is in Toronto. Hello, sir. Welcome to the program. Hello, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. So there are a lot of unanswered questions right now, but these blasts come at a particularly tense time in the Middle East. What's your assessment of what has happened in Iran today? Well, first of all, I think it's a human tragedy to begin with. I think the last number I saw was 93 dead and, and many more injured, and that's horrible. Um, in terms of the geopolitical situation in the Middle East, as you mentioned, it's very complicated. Any sort of uh, violent situation, any sort of attack like this, obviously ratchets up uh, some of the tension. I don't believe that Israel was involved in this attack. It doesn't, doesn't seem like them. I think it's much more likely that it's either something internal in terms of some of the, the various uh, separatist groups that are at times active in Iran, or also very likely uh, ISIS or an ISIS offshoot. So um, that doesn't mean that Israel won't get blamed for it or that it won't be used to try and, again, ratchet up tensions again against Israel, but it doesn't strike me as the kind of operation Israel would, uh, would, would mount mm -hmm. in Iran. Well, Mr. Horak, how dangerous is this moment for the Middle East, especially with these twin blasts in Iran coming just one day after the alleged assassination of a senior Hamas official in Beirut yesterday? It's a very tense time with everything that's going on in Gaza, and we've seen some border clashes in the northern border between Lebanon and, and, uh, and Israel, actually more, more precisely between Hezbollah and Israel. And then you get the assassination of the Hamas official. It all raises tension and raises the risk of a broader escalation. I still think that's unlikely. I don't think either side really wants it to ratchet, wants to ratchet it up. However, sometimes these events can uh, take on a life of their own, so it's obviously a concern. Okay, I want to follow up on something you said previously, which is that you believe Israel is not involved in these attacks. It's important to stress we have no information uh, either way. No group has claimed responsibility. So on what grounds do you base your belief that Israel wasn't involved or may not have been involved? Because I don't see really much of an objective here uh, to, to punish people who are mourning Soleimani. Soleimani was, was a horrible person and whether the people support him or not, they didn't deserve to get blown up. And I just don't see any particular objective the Israelis have but would, would have by blowing up mourners at this, uh, at this uh, procession. It just it, There's no logic to it. And, and Israel does act logically. Uh, other, there are other entities, I think, that, would, uh, that have carried out bombings like this in other parts of the region, Iraq, Syria even Iran in certain cases. So I just, I, I think it's much more likely to be internal, as I said, perhaps a separatist group or uh, ISIS. And from your vantage point, Mr. Horak, is it possible to stop this war between Israel and Hamas from widening even further than it already has, especially when you have the Iran-backed Houthis continuing to attack commercial vessels in the Red Sea, complicating matters even further? It's tough, and I think a lot of uh, parties on all sides are trying to sort of keep the, keep the lid on as much as possible. I don't think Hezbollah wants it to escalate into a full war with Lebanon because I think that would hurt their position within Lebanon. Uh, I don't think Iran, in fact, wants to escalate it either uh, to the degree that, that perhaps they would become more directly involved. 
for Iran to have Hezbollah uh, fire some missiles or for Hezbollah to fire some missiles seemingly in, ostensibly in support of, of the Palestinians, likewise with the Houthi uh, ostensibly in support of the Palestinians, uh, raises their profile, raises their standing within certain circles, and I think that's as far as they really want to go. And that's that's something I think that at all sides and, and a lot of Arab partners uh, would be pressing um, Hezbollah and others uh, uh, to try and make sure that the lid stays honest. And like I said, I don't think Iran has an appetite for a much wider war either. So far, the Red Sea security force led by the United States is not deterring the Houthis, nor is it restoring confidence in the safety of using this vital trade route. How do you see security being restored to that particular region? That's going to be tough. I mean, the Houthis have been, you know, they've been in this civil war with the Saudis now since basically 2014, 2015. Um, they've taken a pounding uh, and have kept on going and they get support from Iran for, uh, in terms of weapons and other kinds of support. So they're going to be hard to sort of push down. Uh, the Americans and other members of the coalition may have to take more direct action. We saw earlier this week, I think it was, or around Christmas perhaps, uh, the sinking of some fast boats, I think, that came in and, and were threatening uh, commercial shipping and perhaps, I think, even uh, American military vessels. So that sort of more kinetic kind of operation, we may see that they may decide, the coalition may decide to, to try and hit uh, Houthi targets within Yemen. Uh, that will be challenging as well and riskier, of course. Um, and there, it, there then is a risk that, that the, this sort of fragile peace negotiations or peace talks between the Saudis and the Yemenis could uh, could be negatively impacted as well. So there's a lot of moving parts here. But at the end of the day, as, as I think the Americans and other members of the coalition have said, that the, the free transit of goods through the Red Sea, it's a very vital uh, shipping uh, shipping transit point. So it, it, it needs to be restored. It needs to be secured. Otherwise, it's open season on, on, on the Gulf, for example, the Persian Gulf, uh, or other areas where uh, we're, transit, we're, we're shipping commercial shipping transits through. So it, it's, it's a vital principle, I think, that needs to be enforced, but it's going to be tough. Well, as you note, uh, there are certainly risks associated associated with either course of action. Whatever it ends up being, we'll certainly watch to see how it develops. What are you watching for over the coming days, weeks, and months? Basically, all of these things is to see how, first of all, how the war in Gaza changes, and I think it will change over the next uh, few months, uh, become perhaps a little bit more low intensity. Uh, but also watching them, the northern border of Israel, uh, Lebanon border, to see if that ratchets up, uh, to see if if Hezbollah were to to increase um, their their missile attacks or various other sorts of attacks over the over the Lebanese border, and Israel responds, that could ratchet out, that could to, could get out of control very quickly. But I think, as I said, I don't think either side wants that to happen, and Iran doesn't want that to happen. These things can take on a life of their own, and it's very, very risky, uh, all of these. And again, with the Red Sea, what happens in terms of uh, how the international community responds, how the Houthis then respond to that? Do they then take it out, for example, on uh, in retaliation? Perhaps they, they target Saudi Arabia or the UAE, as they, as they have in the past. And these, can, these sorts of things can spin out of control, particularly when you're dealing with actors like the Houthi. And to to a similar degree, not exactly the same with Hezbollah, 
who often uh, are acting for various different reasons that, that really have nothing to do with advancing their own individual interests. So it's, it's, it's challenging. Finally, Mr. Horak, I've got about 30 seconds. What can this country, what can Canada do to contribute to the stabilization of the situation? It's, uh, we can talk to the Israelis, we can talk to the Lebanese um, to make sure that, 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 that we try and, 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 and express the need for restraint on both sides. I think that's important. In terms of the Red Sea, we are a, a junior member of the coalition. We sent, I believe, a couple of Canadian Forces personnel to help out, which is good. Uh, it, it may be a symbolic uh, contribution, but that's important too to show that the, and to show that there's broad international support and to try and gain even more international support for that coalition. Um, and to warn others who may want to uh, complicate that situation, to, to to make it harder for the coalition, perhaps to to be active. I'm thinking of Iran here, but perhaps some other rather nefarious actors. I think to to caution them against uh, against intervening. In what is, as I mentioned earlier, uh, uh, enforcing a matter of principle, it's important to the entire international community because the Red Sea is, is one aspect, but there are a lot of other choke points, a lot of other areas where this could happen as well. And that's not in anybody's interest, whether it's China, Russia, or whoever. So I think broadening that. We have to leave it there. So. Dennis Horak, I really want to thank you for your time. Dennis Horak previously served as the head of Canada's mission to Iran and as ambassador to Saudi Arabia. Really appreciate you being here. My pleasure. The Canadian Chamber of Commerce is calling on the federal government to get serious about Canada's place in the world. In a letter addressed to the Prime Minister, the president of the group writes that partners in the Indo-Pacific region increasingly view Canada as a, quote, well-meaning but unserious player on the international stage. Perrin Beattie says Canada can, quote, no longer take for granted these stable and peaceful international conditions. Instead, he is calling for a, quote, sober assessment of our international priorities and a recalibration of how we engage with other nations. Perrin Beattie joins me now. Hello, sir, and welcome to Power and Politics. Hi, Brett. Glad to be with you. So you write that officials and businesses in the Indo-Pacific consider Canada an unserious player on the world stage. Why do you think they're saying that? It actually goes well beyond there. It goes to our allies in Europe as well, our colleagues in NATO and, and elsewhere. There's a feeling that too often we're reactive in international relations as opposed to having a strategic policy, and that too often we're more focused on good feelings than on good outcomes. Well, how is this perception, uh, at least in your opinion, impacting Canada's role in world affairs? Well, I think the important thing is that, that our role in international relations is shrinking and we are drifting toward irrelevance. This is happening at a time when, when Canada has what the world wants and where this could be Canada's moment. If you take a look at, uh, at some of the great issues that, that we're facing today as a result of, uh, of geopolitics and how the situation has changed, food security, energy security are two of the key areas. And Canada has the resources that we need to make a real difference. The three Fs of food, fuel, fertilizer. We have uh, critical minerals and, and wide supply, which are critical for both security and for the e-vehicle industry. But our challenge is we don't have a strategy to supply the world, and we don't have the infrastructure in place to enable us to do it. 
Well, Mr. Beatty, we have reached out to the government for a response to your concerns. We haven't got one just yet, but I would imagine the government would argue that they are taking things seriously. For example, you could point to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau publicly alleging that the Indian government may have been involved in the killing of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil, and that may speak to some of the struggles in the Indo-Pacific region. How would you respond to that? Well, it would be pretty hard not to have noticed the fact that a, that a Canadian citizen was assassinated on Canadian soil. The question is, what is our strategy for the region? And when we look at the Indo-Pacific at the present time, it is an area where, in which the government is focused, and that's a good thing. But our relationship is very fraught with the two largest players, both China and India. And it's going to be important for us to look at how do we refocus in that region now. For example, on Japan and Korea, which are both industrialized democracies, in which both believe in the rule of law, and both of them have relationships that we could deepen significantly between our two countries. And so, what can the government do right now to start reversing the trend? Certainly, the Trudeau government would not be the first in Canadian history to be accused of conducting foreign affairs for domestic purposes and partisan gain. But what can they do now? Well, I think that's the first thing. Let's start by looking at where Canada's strategic interests lie. We should not be determining foreign policy based on what the political impacts are within Canada itself. We should be looking at where, do, where are Canada's strategic interests? Where do we have the opportunity to increase our trade or to make a contribution to global security or to make a contribution to food security, energy security, and so on? And we need as well, when we're looking at what we can do in terms of supplying the needs of the world, to look at the infrastructure that we have in Canada, because we lack the infrastructure to be able to move our goods to market in the way in which we should. If, if we are truly serious, what we need to do is to recognize that the present global situation represents both an incredible threat, but also an opportunity and an obligation for Canada to try to make a difference, to promote stability, promote democracy, to encourage a healthier economy as well for Canadians. And we can do that. This could be Canada's moment if we're prepared to seize it. In your letter, you also call on the federal government to prioritize hitting NATO's 2% of GDP defense spending commitment. There's no indication that will happen anytime soon. And Canada's fiscal room to massively increase spending simply isn't there. I think the parliamentary budget officer estimated it would be upwards of $18 billion. So why is now the time? To hit that target. Nobody expects that the government can reverse this overnight. The question is the, the, tra the trajectory that we're on and whether or not we're determined to meet our commitment. We're in the bottom quartile of countries within NATO in terms of percentage of GDP that we contribute to defense. And when you look at, at our inability to defend ourselves adequately in our own northern region or to contribute to, to uh, uh, collective security along with our NATO allies, this is a major concern. Um, it, it's interesting that at the same time as I wrote my letter, uh, Rear Admiral Octorlone was giving uh, an interview in the news media where he was talking about the fact that our allies are seeing us as increasingly unserious, that they question whether or not we are a reliable partner. What this means is that when the Australians and the British and the Americans come together for the uh, Australia-UK-US agreement, Canada was simply left out. We learned about this at the same time as the rest of the world did. There was a time when the first instinct of our colleagues was, how do we get the Canadians involved? 
Now it's become, should we inform the Canadians? We need to rebuild a strategic partnership with our allies around the world. And to do that, we have to be serious ourselves about making a commitment. And Mr. Beattie, as if all this wasn't enough, you're also drawing attention to the upcoming U.S. presidential election this year. It's an election that could very well see Donald Trump re-elected as president. What's at stake for Canada this November? It's massive. What's at stake? Uh, We do two-thirds of our business with one customer. If any, if any business was doing that, they would focus very clearly on that bilateral relationship. And the challenge that we have is we may have a competition for the presidency of the United States between two people trying to outflank each other on protectionism. And in 2026, the three countries who are uh, signatories to COSMA, the trilateral free trade agreement that we have in North America, will have to signal whether or not they want to have the agreement continue. This means we can't afford to wait until 2025 to start to take our message out, particularly to the United States, to say to Americans in all parts of the U.S. that it's in their interest that we maintain and that we deepen this relationship. Unfortunately, we have a relationship that was once strategic, which has become transactional. And when it's transactional, what happens is is it gets lost to domestic political concerns in the United States. All right, we are out of time for this segment. Mr. Beatty, I want to thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Emergency rooms across the country are struggling to meet the demands of this respiratory season. The Ontario Nurses Association says the province needs an extra 24,000 registered nurses just to keep up. Meanwhile, in Quebec, hospitals are operating at 144% capacity. Similar problems in New Brunswick have caused several hospitals to issue advisories and even close some departments. The stress on Canada's health care system is not new. The government spent months negotiating a nearly $200 billion deal, health care deal with the provinces to improve care for Canadians. So, where are we in this battle and are governments doing enough? The Power Panel is here to weigh in. Sarbjeet Kar is the co-founder of KPW Communications. Tim Powers is the chair of Summa Strategies. And Jordan Likeness is the Frederick Ebert Foundation Canada Program Manager. Hello to you all and welcome to the program. I'll begin with you, Sarbjeet. Uh, Back in February, the federal government announced the largest new health care investments in two decades as part of the bilateral agreements with provinces. Should we be expecting more progress? now? Well, I think uh, at the very least, the provinces can no longer blame the federal government and the funding uh, gap because we do spend uh, the highest per capita of the developed nations on health care. And so it's clearly not just a money issue. The provinces ultimately are responsible for taking those funds and delivering the services. And uh, unfortunately, Money alone cannot solve some of the issues that we have, like healthcare worker shortage. In some provinces, like Ontario, we saw Bill 21 that capped um, wages and drove many, many healthcare workers out of the system permanently. And that's permanent damage that will take a long time to reverse. And at the end of the day, there's also a lot of inefficiencies that need to be addressed. We should be using some of the technologies that we discovered during COVID to modernize healthcare and essentially de-hospitalize healthcare so that people are getting the help that they need outside of emergency rooms. Tim, on that note... And I'm trying not to have a respiratory moment here. (laughs) That's okay. I apologize if I do, You might have to wait a little bit if you do. Uh, But to that point, 
Is the ball back in the province's court? Can they no longer blame the feds for underfunding their healthcare system? Uh, I, I think when it comes to the politics of funding, that all governments just wear it anyway. Um, as Sergi alluded to, look, the money came, but I don't think anybody who received the money, any of the governments who received the money, any of the uh, health institutions and professions was out saying, oh, well, that'll fix it for next year. The changes are going to take years, unfortunately, and that doesn't help right now. And what is more important, arguably, is a commitment to make the changes that were announced last year to invest in training new health professionals. You read the stat there, Brett, 24,000 nurses in Ontario. I think it takes at least, isn't it, a minimum of two years to train a nurse, and then depending on the level of grade and uh, and and criteria that that nurse training nurse in training is receiving, it takes longer than all of that. So more patience is necessary. But I I do agree we need to one look at ourselves a little bit too and see what we've learned from COVID. Do we need to you know get those flu vaccinations? We keep hearing there haven't been an, there hasn't been enough of an uptake there. So we have some responsibility too here. We have to look to online opportunities that are there. But yeah, none of this is going to get fixed fast. Uh, Jordan, it does seem like the conversation has veered a little bit away from the healthcare system, even though it remains in crisis. Why do you think governments, provincial and federal, may be less inclined to uh, harp on that issue right now? Well, I think it's part of the challenge is that for, for some political parties, you know, when I think about conservative premiers, um, this isn't always a favorable issue for them, right? This isn't something that they want to lead with. The, the carbon tax has been a much more politically useful issue for a lot of the conservative premiers in the country. So it makes sense that they've allowed that to dominate their discussions and their fights with the federal government. But, you know, on the other hand, I, I do think you see other governments making very different choices. You've got BC doing uh, really amazing things in terms of bringing in large-scale training for nurses to try to address that human resources crisis. And we actually did just see an election in Manitoba that really hinged on the issue That's of health care. Right. So Wab Canoe uh, and the Manitoba NDP were able to retake government there on the commitment to reopen ERs that were closed by the Stephenson Conservative government. So this is something where voters clearly can make governments pay a price if they feel like these issues are not being resolved. That's right, Tim. Uh, back to you on that note. I, I noticed, by the way, Jordan's examples were of NDP governments. That's very strange. <laughs> there are no well, coincidences, Tim. Uh, on that note, <laughs> fixing the health care system was a central plank of Wabkanu's election campaign, successful yep. campaign in Manitoba. Do you think we'll see a renewed focus on fixing the health care system in 2024? Well, I think it's going to depend on how he tries to score himself and communicate that and how the public accepts that scoring. I think that's true for every Premier be premier Canoe or look at Premier Fury in my home uh, province of Newfoundland and Labrador, um, the only Liberal Premier in the country and one of the more popular premiers in the country, he's got a fairly aggressive health care transformation uh, agenda at play, but he too is dealing with uh, waiting room issues and emergency room issues, as every province is. So again, part of it is going to be us being patient, but also continuing to keep up the political pressure, not get lost by the other shiny baubles and objects that come up there, because this is a decade-long or longer project, because health care has been in decline for decades in this country. 
Sarbjeet. Uh, on a related note, the government is set to spend $13 billion on dental care over the next five years. I know the Quebec Premier uh, had some concerns saying that money should just be spent on the health care system. What do you make of that point? Should this money be spent to prop up the existing health care system rather than on dental care? No, as I said, I think the existing health care system, it already eats up the majority of any province's budget, and they need to look at other ways to, to address those concerns without sacrificing uh, investments in dental care, which, you know, I think uh, anyone who has had to, to go and pay for their own uh, cleanings for their children or anything like that, these are serious health issues. It shouldn't be anything that's not included under the health care umbrella. So I think it's been a long time coming. It's great news for Canadians and Canadian families. A national pharmacare program will be next, hopefully. So I think the dental care is absolutely essential and uh, long overdue and something that will make a real difference in, in the lives of pretty much every Canadian. Can, can I just say on that, and I don't dispute that dental care will make a difference, and it, it, it is important to it's people. It's linked to the health care system. And look, dental health is connected to cardiac health. All of that is true, and that's been proven time and time again. But Look, we, we talk about that $13 billion, and that's a choice that's been made, and, and fair enough, that choice has been made, but we can't spend in every sector, right? Or we can, but there will be other costs to it, and we have to be realistic about this. I think sometimes when we hear about investment in these important programs, and I'm not saying they're not important, we do have to realize there are trade-offs, whether stated or not, in other aspects of, uh, of the healthcare system. And sometimes, again, when it gets back to accountability, we, the voters, need to be asking the politicians about, okay, if you're investing here, what might be we losing here or somewhere else? I see Jordan wants to get in on that. I have thoughts. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, Don't I, you <laughs> hurt my cardiac system now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think your heart can take it. You know, and, and really the point, I think, on, on dental is that it's not a zero-sum game, no. of course, right? And we know that the people who are going to be reached by this program are people who don't have any insurance, and that means that these are often people who end up in primary care because of dental issues. And also the spending that's happening on that program is additional to funds that the federal government is putting into the Canada health transfer. So it's not a zero-sum game in that sense. And when we make these investments, that's actually going to help lift the burden on some of the, the wait times that we're seeing in the ER. So I think we need to really walk and chew gum on this one. We have to look at expanding our health care to really touch all aspects of health, and that includes dental care, that includes prescription drugs. But we also have to remedy the system that we have, and that's not just a money issue. That's also about dealing with But remember when the pandemic started, though, um, and we're still I guess in the pandemic, um, as experts say, the big focus was on long-term healthcare and LTCs and looking after people that way at the end of life. Well, I'm going gonna, gonna to jump in on right there because there have been oh, warnings. You're cutting me off. I know. Well, <laughs> there have been warnings from the Canadian Medical Association that the healthcare system is near total collapse. Yeah. So it's not just long-term care. It's not just yeah. one element of the system. We uh, spoke to. Uh, emergency room physician earlier in the show mm -hmm. who said that the overcrowding is the worst he's seen uh, in nearly 40 years. So I want to turn to Harjit. I mean, can we see and can we expect a greater focus on fixing health care in 2024? I mean, in terms of the emergency rooms, um, the biggest push has been to educate people on alternatives, mm -hmm. prevention, like proper dental care will certainly help. It's unfortunate that masking has become so politicized because in flu season, like now, respiratory illnesses, you know, whether there's COVID or not, we saw during COVID that, 
Even worker productivity went up. People weren't calling sick. Someone was telling me a story earlier today. They were at the barber shop. Two of the barbers called in sick. They were asking why the remaining barber was wearing a mask. And she was like, because two people called in sick and I wouldn't be here to help cut your hair if I didn't. So it's really unfortunate that measures like that are not in place and being encouraged. Also, education and communication. If there are urgent health care centers that you can go to, walk-in clinics, telehealth phone lines you can call, every single Canadian needs to know that. It's spending that money on those radio ads and translating them, doing whatever you need to do. It's going to come back um, you know, and be well, well worth the value. So I think every person needs to know what those alternatives are if they're there. Because a lot of urgent care centers were shut down during COVID, and I'm not fully aware if they've been reopened. Jordan, should we be concerned a little bit about the politicization of public health in Canada? Should this not be an all-hands-on-deck type of situation? Well, sure. I mean, I think healthcare in Canada has always been a political issue, mm-hmm. and, and of course, uh, since the pandemic, even more so. And and I, I agree with what Harjit was saying about masking and what Tim said about vaccines. Like, there are common sense public health measures that we found very effective during the pandemic that unfortunately are not being clearly communicated to people right now. And that's a, that's a public health failure. But, you know, I think that this is an emergency, and, and this is something that will have to be dealt with politically. Mm-hmm. But there are different approaches in terms of how to fix that. And, you know, we've, we've talked a little bit about what's happening in BC and Manitoba, but you can see also some different approaches in Ontario. So they've made big investments in some private delivery, which is all well and good. We have a lot of private delivery in our system. However, there's only one pool of healthcare professionals. All right, I want to get one word... Last word to Tim, 15 seconds. Oh, my God. Okay, I just wasted seven of it. I, I think we all have to be realistic about we can't fund everything. We have to be smarter about what we do and accept the realities of that. Okay, I want to thank our power panel, Sarjeet Carr, Tim Powers, and Jordan Likeness. It was great to have you all here with me. Thank you. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm Brett Forster, and thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.